thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. Maybe it would be a good idea if you could just, for the few people who might not know, just introduce yourself really quickly. Sure. So my name is Kara Dansky. I am an attorney and a feminist. I have a background in political science and I served on the board of the Women's Liberation Front from 2016 to 2020. And currently I work with the Women's Human Rights Campaign at both the US level and the international level. And you've been very, very prominent in um, defending single sex spaces for women and, and lots of other things that people may have seen. So, and I know that you also have worked with parents of these young people who are identifying as trans and listening to their stories. So. I'm hoping that we can have a chat which will inspire people and, and basically that some of your activism magic will just rub off onto everyone else because you've been obviously very successful. So I've got a few, I've got a few questions and a couple of them are sort of crowdsourced from parents because I said, I've got this amazing opportunity to speak to Kara Dansky, what would you ask her? So in your experience campaigning on this, is it more effective to address the root philosophy behind transgenderism, or is it more effective to address its real world consequences if it comes down to that choice? So it's a great question. And my thinking on this has really evolved. As your listeners may know, I really got into this topic from a feminist perspective because I was gravely concerned about what I saw as the incursion of what I refer to as gender identity ideology into the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls as women and girls. And I continue to think that that is a critically important issue to talk about. And as my friend and colleague, who I'm sure your listeners know of, Jennifer Billick, has been uncovering more and more of the appalling money and industry-driven nature of this so-called movement, I've been thinking more deeply about the, the larger, very real world implications of what this is doing to our society and what may be of particular interest to your listeners is what it's doing to our children and to our parents. It's not particularly mysterious that it benefits certain industries to put children on a lifetime of hormones and surgeries. And what is happening is, is truly a tragedy. It's, a, it's an absolute travesty for children. I know that your work focuses mainly on boys and mm -hmm. that's an extremely important issue. And uh, you know, I think your listeners probably are also aware that the number of girls who have been referred to gender clinics has skyrocketed. So we really have to be looking at this from all angles. I very much appreciate the feminist contributions to the conversation about the importance of maintaining single sex spaces. And I have no intention of abandoning my advocacy on that. And also I have come to understand the critical importance of talking about the much broader issues of what it means to have an industry driven so-called movement that is attacking children, attacking parents, attacking women and girls. It's all very profit driven. And as evolutionary biologist, Dr. Colin Wright has fa fairly famously, I think, warned us that what we are seeing is 
the untethering of our society from reality and it's extremely dangerous. So I think we really need to be going after this from all angles. So uh, just before um, I hit record, I said to you, you know, I, I would have done this as, as a young person, I would have done this. And I think uh, if I had had the chance to just abandon the challenge of growing up to be a man and mistakenly convinced myself I could just ditch that and become a quote unquote woman, I would have done that. And not only would that have had grave consequences for the, for the girls in my school, but it would have been the wrong thing for me to do as well. It's just a bad policy all round. It's terrible for the young men who are talked into this idea that that's a sustainable outcome for them. And um, I'm hoping we can briefly return to that point in a bit more specifically. But I wanted to ask you, very few people have crossed the political aisle with the level of success that you have had. I mean, there's Miriam Ben Shalom would be an obvious example, but it's a fairly small list. What would you say to parents who feel that their voices should only be amplified by the centre or the left because they justify that by saying, well, it's those on the centre and the left whose minds need to be changed. We've already got the right, so to speak, because there is this is an ongoing debate among the parent community. There are some who say, no, we need to speak to whoever will listen. And then there are others who say, no, we should focus our attention on the centre and the left. What would you say to those who say we should only focus our attention on the center and the left? Well, we have to be speaking with everyone. And um, specifically on the question of, of talking with the right, I think that it is, it is a mistake to assume that we have the right in this battle. I do think that there are many uh, I'll just speak about U.S. because that's what I know most, right? So I'll just speak about Republicans in the United States. I know much less about, for example, Tories in the U.K. <laughs> but, you know, I have had many conversations with Republicans, and I think that there's still a lot of work to do there, because although many Republican-sponsored bills and Republican-led conversations on this topic are very well-intentioned, um, quite often Republicans get it wrong in terms of the analysis and the language. And I'll just give an example. I was recently invited to a meeting of the Denver Republican women. So this is a group of Republican women based in Denver, Colorado, and they invited me to meet with them and I was quite happy to do so. And they were very welcoming and we had a, a lovely conversation and a great meeting and they were they were so happy to hear that there are voices on the political left, which I still consider myself to be. They were so happy to hear uh, my analysis and my contributions to the discussion. And we had a great conversation. And I think that I was able to help clarify some things in their minds. For example, one woman asked me, okay, how are we going to tackle this issue of transgender athletes in girls' sports? And I asked them, what do they mean by transgender? Or I asked her, what does she mean by transgender? And she sort of stumbled over the question a little bit. And I said, I think what you mean are men and boys. And the, the feeling was almost a feeling of a sigh of relief that these women almost seemed to feel like I was giving them permission 
to name men and boys as men and boys. Our society has been completely captured by this notion that we have to go along with the tenets of what I am referring to these days as the gender identity industry. And we don't, but Republicans don't yet understand that. And so there's a lot of education to be done within American conservatives. So I would really encourage parents to be talking with the right. Now, when it comes to talking with the left, that's also very important. And I tend to run around in very sort of traditional liberal circles. And whenever I have an opportunity, I take it to talk with my friends. It's exceedingly difficult to get through because the left has been so captured by this. But I have had some success in talking at an individual level with many of my friends who will eventually start to open their eyes and see what's going on, especially when we can talk about big pharma. You know, the left loves to hate big pharma. And yeah. so yeah. when we talk about how uh, big pharma is driving this, they do tend to listen. And just on this topic, I, I just want to say that I have, as many of your listeners will know, I have been very frustrated with uh, mainstream or corporate media, which will not platform gay rights activists or feminists. And I thought for the longest time that the reason they would not platform feminists was, you know, just usual misogyny. But I have come to think now that the media has been completely bought by the industry. And what that means is they know they know that if they platform feminists, left-leaning feminists and gay rights activists, that we will win and the industry will lose. They know it. If ordinary everyday Democrats could hear the voices of parents, feminists, and gay rights activists, the gender identity industry is dead and the media knows it. So just a quick story from a parent perspective, um, I think you know that I have spent some time talking with a lot of parents and I'm, I'm sharing the story because I know something about your audience, but th the story is that for a while before the pandemic, I was meeting on a monthly or so basis with parents in my area who were struggling with this. And some of the parents are a lesbian couple who live in DC, uh, married women who have three children and one of their daughters was struggling with this. I'm happy to say she no longer is. So that's a little bit of good news. Right. Um, but this, this lesbian couple, uh, you know, very lefty, liberal, Washington, D.C., uh, married lesbian couple. Um, one of the women was she was telling me that when she came out, she came out in 1979 in Texas. And she told me that coming out as a lesbian in 1979 in the state of Texas was easier for her than talking about, quote unquote, gender identity in her liberal circles in Washington, D.C. And that's just astonishing when you really think about it. Yeah. That was a very well, long way to answer. So I, well, I, th I think you may actually have just answered the next question. Well, maybe slightly answered the next question. So. You mentioned Jennifer Billick, and uh, one of the things she's done is, is this wonderful, disturbing research into 
the finances are behind the uh, capture of uh, organizations like Planned Parenthood in particular and the ACLU. There's, there's complexity there around funding. Um, so we've got captured institutions where there's pretty clear evidence of financial movements so movements of money. But then there are also, as you say, there are corporate uh, media and various other institutions and maybe even the Democratic Party in toto could be put into this category. Do you just write them off? these institutions which have been captured, or do you try and, and fight from within? And I think particularly in regard to the Democratic Party, because some of these parents are still registered members of the Democratic Party and have no intention of abandoning the battlefield. Others say, forget it, it's dead, move on. Where, where do you stand on that? So I need to say, and this is a good opportunity. Um, so I'm currently working with the Women's Human Rights Campaign, as I mentioned, globally and at the national level. And WHRC is a completely nonpartisan organization. So I have to say that. I can also say, speaking solely for myself, I registered as a Democrat when I turned 18. And I have been a Democrat ever since except for a very brief period of time when I was a member of the Green Party, but I quickly abandoned that and rejoined the Democratic Party. I do feel motivated to fix this within the Democratic Party. I cannot bring myself to be a Republican, mainly because of my stance on abortion rights. I will not abandon my, my uh, commitment to abortion rights and joining the Republican party for me personally would be an abandonment of my commitment to abortion rights. So I can't do that. I could become an independent. I would feel comfortable doing that in principle. However, the reason I don't do that is that I live in a closed uh, primary system, which means that in order to vote in primaries, I have to be registered with one party or another. So I've thrown my lot in with the Democrats. I have no intention of abandoning that for those two reasons. But I am sympathetic to people who say, forget the Democrats, it's a lost cause. But I, I, don't, I, I am sympathetic to that and I won't blame anyone for abandoning the Democrats as a lost cause. But I, I'm not ready to give up yet. And I, you know, I sort of know myself as being probably uh, unduly optimistic to a fault. And I probably ought to abandon any hope that the Democratic Party will change, but I can't. I'm not ready to do that just yet. You're not there. Okay. You're not there yet. Okay. And right. Um, so as you say, the, 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 the rise in transgenderism has been largely among young women. The figure I've seen from the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine puts it at uh, roughly four to one. I think there are other people who say it's three to one. So it's pretty overwhelming. I wanted to ask you, there's a question which is a little complicated. As you know, a lot of these young people, the relationship with the parent when they actually decide that they are going down this route can become very brittle and they can drop it at any moment if they feel that the parent is pushing back once they've left the home. So these, when they go off to college, I know of a couple who went to see their son and they were rehearsing how not to use pronouns when speaking in the car because they wouldn't say to him, yeah, we'll call you she. But on the other hand, if they said he in his presence, they were so worried about the relationship just disappearing. 
And then this does extend into the issue of single sex spaces because then they plan to go to a restaurant. Now, I don't know whether that a young man decided to use the bathroom when they were at the restaurant, but it's torture for some of these parents because if they see their boy and he's heading off to the bathroom and they think, well, on the one hand, I'm betraying my sex if I allow him to go into the women's. On the other hand, do I care enough about that to risk never seeing my offspring again? That I can't imagine how difficult that is. Now, my answer to that is not a council of despair. They can do something, but ultimately it's, it has to be political. It has to be therefore policy at whatever level, state, national level. Is there anything you think that you've heard of that can actually help to communicate to these young people exactly what they're doing, given how brittle these relationships can become when, when young men start to go down this path? Is there any advice you could give? So I'm not a parent. I, you know, I need to get that out there. And it, it, I, I just, I just cannot possibly fathom the, the trauma and the pain of what parents are experiencing, as you describe. Uh, I, I, I do know from speaking with parents how devastating all of this is. That particular dilemma I hadn't even contemplated. Um, but I, but I guess to answer your question, I will say this. As I have been speaking with parents, well, let me also say, I also understand that the parents, especially of minor children, are in an impossible bind here because of very valid privacy concerns about minor children. I think those concerns extend to parents of young people who are not minors because those parents also have privacy concerns for their adult children, which are completely valid. So I understand parents are in a really impossible bind here. Uh, I, I guess what I would say is it, in my conversations with parents over the past several years, most of the parents that I have spoken with start out on this impossible journey feeling a, just a, a tremendous amount of concern for their children, rightly so, right? They, they start out thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on? I, I care about the, uh, you know, my, my child's health, right? First and foremost, my child's health um, for, and I hate to say this because I just cannot imagine how painful, how dreadfully painful it is for parents whose children have threatened suicide. Um, parents come at this from, start this journey from a completely devastating and totally valid and understandable concern for their child's health and well-being. And many are just unaware of what is going on societally. And so as parents go down this journey, it, turn, it tends to turn into, or at least from my observation, it often turns into a, a commitment to be fighting this battle. And then when parents undertake a commitment to fighting this battle, then they get into the really devastating quandary about what to do about children's privacy concerns. Because I understand parents cannot speak out publicly. Most, some can, but most cannot. And that is totally understandable. One thing that I will say though, is that even people who cannot speak out publicly, including parents who have valid concerns about their children's health and privacy, including people who are afraid of losing their jobs, which is many of us, 
you know, whether we're whether we have day jobs in corporate America or whether we have academic positions that we're afraid of losing, many people do not feel that they can speak out publicly, and that is completely understandable. However, it risks almost nothing to speak with public officials. Our our public officials at our local levels, our state levels, and at our federal levels will speak with us, and they'll do it privately and. These days it's even easier because they'll do it in a Zoom meeting. And you do not have to speak out publicly in order to speak with public officials. So I just really want to encourage all of your listeners to really think about doing that. You can do it, you can't do it anonymously. They want to know your name, but they won't publicize your name. You can have a private meeting with your local, state and federal elected officials. Now that does not answer the the very difficult specific hypothetical that you posed is, you know, what can parents do when faced with the dilemma between betraying one's sex, if one's a mother, of allowing a young male to enter the women's bathroom versus risking alienating one's own child? My answer does not answer that specific dilemma. And I'm sorry, I do not have a good answer to that, other Uh. than to say that these kinds of, these kinds of torturous dilemmas are what this industry is doing to women and girls, mothers and fathers and children. And it's awful. Yeah. I don't have a specific answer to it either, but I would agree with you that certainly, I think a lot of parents are very trepidatious about approaching public officials. And then when they do it, they think, well, that wasn't so bad. And that's my experience as well. um, Because I've spoken to people who are in some limited decision-making capacity and, and they do, you know, tend to be quite responsive when it's done in that way, which safeguards your privacy. Um, can I, can I, um, I, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Can no, I go back? It's th- so on the topic of speaking with public officials and also on the topic of the whole right left question, <laughs> I, I meant to add, so, so a few of us met with, I'll, I won't name him, I will just say a fairly prominent Democratic senator who is one of the sponsors of the so-called Equality Act. We had, we had a meeting with this Democratic senator, uh, not him, uh, but his staff. And in the course of that meeting, the staffer mentioned that some of the Democrats are open to compromise. And that was good news. And it... I realized in that moment, it gave me an opportunity to say to this Democratic Senate staffer, okay, great. Your boss is open to compromise on the so-called Equality Act. That's really good news. And let me also say this. And I told him, I represent a nonpartisan organization, but speaking solely for myself, I'm a lifelong Democrat. So that gave me an immediate connection with this staffer, right? So he knew where I was coming from. And what I told him was, as your boss and his colleagues are considering compromises on the Equality Act, please know that the other side, meaning Republicans, do not necessarily represent the rights of women and girls or of parents and children. The compromises, for the most part, that Republicans are seeking have to do with religious exemptions. What Republicans in Congress want to see are exemptions for religious institutions and you know, I I don't even have to have an opinion on that. I will just say that is not my issue, right? I am interested in protecting the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. And I have 
really serious concerns about children's health and parents' rights. And in the current state of affairs, Republicans aren't representing those interests. So I just really wanted this Democratic staffer to understand that if the Democrats are considering compromises, they need to be listening to feminists, they need to be listening to gay rights activists, and they need to be listening to parents and children and what we in this movement tend to refer to as detransitioners. Yes. Republicans do not represent those voices. As important as Republican voices are in this debate, they do not represent those voices. So I just wanted to make sure to include that political nuance yeah and also you know from a parent's perspective not that i am a parent but it, they really shouldn't have to you know get their children confirmed into the catholic faith just to get around this issue that's absurd right yeah. it, it shouldn't be a religious exemption issue just very broadly when it comes to big tech perhaps when it comes to schools what are there any practical and um, really practical ideas it could be something very administrative about organizing which has worked for you and which might also work as uh, for parents in terms of organizing i understand it is somewhat different because of the anonymity issue which most people are having to go through but do you think that there are practical uh, campaigning ideas which could which parents could be engaging in somewhat more than they are at the moment so far as you can see it so i have not actually done this but i know a woman in washington state who dug up her state's freedom of information law right the federal government has foia freedom of information act and that allows anyone in the us to request information from the united states government Every single state has a similar law on the books. So this woman in Washington uh, is a parent, though her children are adults, and she comes at this from a feminist perspective, though she is also gravely concerned for children. And uh, she submitted a freedom of information request to her state's Department of Education seeking information about curriculum. And eventually she got it. I have seen it. It's actually, you know, it's it's appalling. It teaches kindergartners that it's possible to be born in the wrong body and that it's possible for a boy to be a girl five years old, five years old kindergartners. Uh, so the curriculum is absolutely appalling. And maybe after we get done talking, I can share with you a video that she did that your listeners might be very interested in. Uh, it's it's hard to watch. The video is very hard to watch because it's so disgusting what these children are being taught. OK, but setting that aside, everyone in any state can submit a freedom of information request to their state department of education requesting information about the curriculum that is being taught in public schools and i think it would just be fantastic for parents to organize around this because you do not have to be public with the information that you get then at that point once you get the information now i should say getting the information might be a bit of a fight because state departments of education may not be interested in releasing it for reasons that we all know. But this woman in Washington was able to get her hands on the state curriculum and she was able to put up a video. She did this all anonymously. One, one can watch the video and have no idea who she is. You can hear her voice because she talks about it, but there's nothing identifying her in the video. So any parent can do this. And I, I think it would be fantastic if parents could get more active specifically in this aspect of the fight.
Fantastic. That hadn't occurred to me at all. And I think that that's, that's a great, that's a great idea to follow up on. I think people will find that really inspiring. Um, so this one, this question, I'm really interested to hear on, to hear your take on this. So one of the themes with the young men going through this, because we know there's a whole issue about autism and whether it is higher among young men or whether there's an autism visibility gap that pertains to biological sex. It's quite a difficult matter. But the people looking into this, uh, including Sasha Ayad and Stella O'Malley, have identified this theme, which in, in my Quillette piece, I call the cheerleader. So very often the young men will have a close female friend who's very encouraging of this trans identity. Now the survey I did of parents of trans identifying young people did uncover that, uh, it, well, it confirmed that the female dominated peer group is the kind of uh, breeding ground for a lot of this ideology. It does seem to move more between young women. But then very often there is this character who she is uh, in some ways uh, pushing or encouraging or, or praising this transformation, supposed transformation into the female form. And it's very easy, I think, for parents to be very, parents of boys to be very resentful of that young woman. Now, taking the young woman's perspective, she may believe that she's making a wonderful positive difference in the world by encouraging this new trans identity. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on, is there a way to sort of stymie that particular form of influence without vilifying a young woman who, who in many cases, earnestly seems to believe that she's doing the right thing for her friend and for society? It's a great question, and it kind of gets at a, an even broader topic that I've really been doing some hard thinking about, which is why on earth is it that it seems to be women, at least socially, who are pushing this? We, kn we know, as you pointed out earlier, that it's mostly a handful of extremely wealthy men who are who are pushing this. Um, but it does seem socially that that it's women who are young women who are encouraging this. And I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of it, but I guess you're you're sort of encouraging me to think about the connection between the dynamic that you're describing and the difficulties that young women are facing in society when it comes to exploitation of young women, especially through pornography. I don't know if there's a link there, but it's worth thinking about it. You know, it, I'm, I'm completely speculating right now. So I just want to be clear about that. I certainly haven't read any of Dr. Ayad's work on this. I'd be very curious to, but I wonder if there's something going on where there there may be a sense of camaraderie. If young women are thinking, okay, if I have to be in this mess, if I have to, if I have to walk down the street and have older men stare at my newly developing body, if I have to be subjected to young men in my school who are sexting me or encouraging me to watch pornography, if 
if I have to be in this mess, this absolute mess of being female in this disgustingly misogynistic society, you're going to come along with me. I don't know. I am completely speculating here. I can say that as a woman in my 40s, growing up as a teenager and a young woman was really, really hard. And all women can relate to how difficult it is to you know, be subjected to what we're subjected to. And I, from what I've read and heard, it is just exponentially worse for young women today. So that is my completely unscientific, totally speculative suggested response that maybe it's a desire for a sense of camaraderie. If I have to be in this mess, you're going to come along with me. Yeah, I mean, that relates to one of the things that parents and, and I think um, Stella O'Malley has spoken about this is that the young man, the young man in question then becomes, quote unquote, safe, that he's safe company in some sense. Of course, there isn't any substantive change. So if he was a danger to them in the first place, then that doesn't change by any kind of shifting around of language. And I think that most of the young men, I should say that the, the people I work with, this is in no by no means like a representative sample of, let's say, middle-aged autogynophiles. I, I really don't know very much about that phenomenon. I think for most of the parents that I'm working with, their children or their sons are very, very sensitive souls anyway. So they're kind of, in some sense, they're already in a position where that kind of relationship is probably more appealing to them. But I, I think that certainly this idea of a safe male relationship reconstrued as a female sort of sisterly bond, that does seem to be coming up. Um, and I think, you, yes, I mean, in terms of the connection with pornography, interestingly enough, the, the, the research that I did, the survey that I did shows no statistical difference that the parents perceive between boys and girls in terms of the influence of pornography. So pornography is having as much of a deleterious effect on girls as it is on boys, which I think a lot of people, when they enter this, might not immediately imagine, but the further you get into it, you, the more you realize that. Um, I wanted to ask, there are so many policymakers who are just now doing things like conflating gay conversion therapy with ethical psychological support for gender dysphoria, who are just blatantly ignoring evidence. And we've spoken about the notion of capture, but when you're talking to people in your social group, you've got this wall of the mainstream narrative, which you have to kind of scale. And you can sound crazy. I know I have sounded, from the perspective of my interlocutor, quite crazy. Have you got any tips or tricks just to how, how to overcome that first minute of, what are you crazy, that first moment? Yeah, it is really interesting. I. One anecdote that I like to share is one friend I have in particular, I've known her for years and several years ago, she was very sort of, you know, she would go on my social media and she would say, I stand with my trans brothers and sisters and, you know, trans rights and trans women are women and all the things. And I've been working on her slowly over the years. And I, I think that I've, so it, it's difficult because with people that I've known for many years, they know who I am. They know what I stand for. They, they know that I am a thoughtful, 
considerate person. And so they're often willing to listen when their initial instinct is that I sound crazy. So, but just to finish out this anecdote, I, I've, got, I've brought her around, right? I've gotten her to agree that, that males do not belong in women's sports. I've gotten her to understand that male people do not belong in women's bathrooms. She considers herself a feminist. So I've finally got her around to thinking that. So I, I took it a step further recently and I looked at her and I said, do you understand that this movement is sterilizing children? And she looked me right in the eye and she said, that isn't happening. It's just, it's, it's almost like, well, it is like people refuse to believe how bad this is because they don't want to believe how bad this is. And so, so there I was with her just looking at me saying that's not happening when I know that it is happening. Um, but so that's just an anecdote. But my other answer is ask questions. So part of how I have succeeded in kind of bringing around my liberal friends who really don't want to be brought around is asking questions. And so I will, I will ask, you know, I had a friend ask me, you know, Kara, what's your problem with trans people? And I asked her, what do you mean by trans people? And she said, huh, well, I guess I mean people who are trans. And I said, okay, well, do you have an answer that isn't completely circular? And she said, oh, okay, I mean people who are transgender. And I said, okay, what do you mean by transgender? And she was like, huh, I guess I don't really know what I mean by that. And this is a very smart woman. And so, and she's an attorney. And I said, okay, fair enough. Are you in the habit of using words that you don't know the meaning of? And she said, well, no, I'm not. And I said, okay, then why are you using this word when you don't, when you can't tell me what you even mean by it? And she said, oh, well, I guess that's something for me to think about. I said, yeah. So, so that's one thing I have, I have found that simply asking questions can kind of pull people into understanding their own confusion around this. And then another thing that I have done with, I won't say who, but people who are very close to me is I've really just told them the full extent of what is going on here. And then I've said, look, I know that I sound like a crazy person right now. But I also know that you know that I am not crazy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I am asking you to consider the possibility that what I am telling you is true. I said, I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist right now. And I also know that you know that I am not a conspiracy theorist. So consider the possibility that what I am saying is true. And uh, they promised that they would, and I haven't spoken with them recently, so I don't know where they are on their own journey, but there we are. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've had a relationship quite seriously impacted by what I've done, which is an awful lot less than what you've done, and it's less visible and all the rest of it, and I wish I'd said that. That's a really good answer. Um, I've got two more questions, if that's all right. Um, the first one is, do you see an American Kira Bell on the horizon? And if you do, do you think that might play out differently from in the UK in some way? Or do you think it would be roughly the same? And... 
The specific answer is I don't know of any individual Kirabel on the horizon in the US. I have heard rumblings through throughout the movement that that it's coming soon, that a similar case is coming soon. Now, then we get into all sorts of complexities around differences between UK law on consent and informed consent versus US law on conformed consent. And I can't weigh in on that. I'm just not an expert on that area of the law. I am also not an expert in medical malpractice. And so sometimes I get a little bit tripped up because people will say to me, Kara, why don't you sue these people? Why don't you sue these doctors in these clinics for medical malpractice? And my answer to that question is, well, that would be committing my own legal malpractice because I would have no idea what I'm doing. I am utterly unqualified to practice law in that area. And so I shouldn't do it. Um, we also have an issue in the US that the UK does not have. And people who are not attorneys, understandably, have no reason to understand this. But in order to have a Kira Bell case in the US, we need to have, first of all, a plaintiff who is as brave as Kirabel is. That plaintiff needs to live in a state where there is an attorney who is licensed in that state to practice law, who is also an expert in medical malpractice and informed consent, who is good at what they do, who is also willing to be public on this issue and who is either willing to take it on pro bono or can find some other arrangement for getting compensated. That is a lot of stars that need to align in order for, for the US to have a Kira Bell-like case. And I haven't seen it yet. That doesn't mean it isn't happening. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I should just interject and say, if you're um, listening to this and you have a glass of alcohol nearby, raise it and uh, toast Kira Bell, because I just think everyone needs to be very mindful of the enormity of what she's done. Um, I lied. I've got two more questions now. I just wanted to sneak this one in. There's a theory that that having in Britain, having the National Health Service, I, and I didn't write this question down, but it just occurred to me, has been advantageous over the American system because it's one sort of monolithic healthcare system rather than a, a competing set of um, private health companies. And I'm just really interested, where are you on, is, is that something that you would agree with that theory or? As, again, speaking solely for myself, if we're talking about the politics of healthcare, we're far afield from the topic that the women's human rights campaign focuses on. But speaking solely for myself, I would much prefer a unified healthcare system, but I'm not an expert in health policy, so I don't know how that would work. And phrases like universal healthcare and single payer, I'm just really, I, I, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the nuances of all of those things to really understand healthcare policy. But I, I would much prefer a system that provides, let me, let me put it this way, I want everybody to have healthcare. I don't know how that works, but I want everybody to have healthcare. And I would prefer it if we didn't all have to pay for it. Okay, and then this time, seriously, last question. So this is something I'm really interested in. As you know, these kids get this, this, they get love bombed. It's so wonderful. It's everything. It takes up so much of their time. Even the ones who aren't doing it are sharing all these memes. And at some point, 
the culture has to move on. At some point, somebody needs to say, eh, trans, it's a bit last year. We've, it's a bit kind of, and it just goes in that direction because a lot of this is cultural. And while it's very valuable to talk about policy and what parents might do practically and all the rest of it, the culture needs to move on. I wonder if you have any ideas of what might replace this. What might replace this? Um, I, I, I don't. And the reason I say that is that I don't know about you, but I have not seen anything like this in my lifetime. And here's what I mean about that. We have grappled with some very controversial issues in our society. And again, I'm talking about the US here. We have and continue to grapple with an issue like abortion right? It's a very difficult political issue. And we grapple with it, not to my satisfaction, and probably also not to the satisfaction of Republicans. Nobody's happy with the state of abortion laws. They're, they're not as liberal for me, and they're not as conservative for Republicans. But we grapple with it at the political level. We have religion. People can fight about religion. Somebody might be Catholic and somebody might be evangelical and somebody might be Jewish and somebody might be Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist. And we can have conversations about differences in religion and you know what's better and what's worse and what's right and what's wrong. We can have those conversations. We in this country survived four years of the previous president whose name I will not say. That is maybe one of the most challenging, difficult, controversial situations in the political realm that our society has grappled with. What we are dealing with when we're talking about gender and the gender identity industry is harder than all of those because it is that thing that cannot be named. For example, a very good friend of mine who I have known since we were in seventh grade will not talk with me about this at all, to the point that I was visiting her, I was in her home, and I tried to have this conversation, and she said, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, I I've known this woman, you know, for decades, and we talk about everything, and we don't agree on everything, but we can talk about it. And I said, okay, that's fine. Can you tell me why you don't want to talk about it? And she said, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, okay, that's fine. I'm in your home. I'm not going to push you to talk about something you don't want to talk about. I'm just really curious if you can tell me why. And she literally put her hands on her ears and yelled, I don't want to talk about it. And that's when I let it go and that's fine. But I've never seen anything like what our society is dealing with when we're talking about gender and gender identity. And I share that story just to say, I cannot imagine what is going to replace this because this is the hardest thing we've ever dealt with. This is harder than Donald Trump. Well, there was a theory that if, if a, you know, something big came along like a war or an epidemic, that that would put an end to it. So yeah, turns out not so much. Um, listen, I'm just so that you've given me loads to think about. I'm going to, uh, I've got to go and go for a drive now and I shall, need to concentrate on the road because my brain will be buzzing. I just want to say thank you so much for your time and for all of your input. This has been great. And I know that the, so many people will be really, really grateful and inspired to hear your perspective on this. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Keep up the fight.